Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Julian Castro ignited a controversial uh, conversation about Section 1325 in the first Democratic presidential debate last night in Miami. Statute 1325 is part of U.S. immigration law that makes entering the U.S. without proper documentation a felony. Castro wants to repeal 1325. Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker also back the repeal. Castro mixed it up last night with Beto O'Rourke, who doesn't support the appeal. We would not detain any family fleeing violence, in fact, fleeing the deadliest countries on the face of the planet today. And then we would rewrite our immigration laws in our own image, free dreamers forever from any fear of deportation by making them U.S. citizens here in this country, invest in solutions in Central America, work with regional stakeholders so there's no reason to make Thank that 2,000-mile journey to but this we country. Have Secretary, I'll give you 30 seconds. Let's be very clear. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border, to incarcerate the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates to do that. I just think it's a mistake, Bethel. I think it's a mistake. And I think that, that if you truly want to change the system, then we got to repeal that section. If not, Thank you. then it so might as well be the same let, policy. Let, let me, very let me respond to this very briefly. Since Actually, as quick. a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge I'm in this country. If you're about, fleeing, if you're fleeing desperation, asylum, then I'm I want to make about, sure, I'm I want to make sure that you're treated else. with respect. I'm still talking about everybody but, else. But you're looking at just one small part of this. I'm talking about a Comprehensive rewrite of our immigration that's laws, not true. and if we do that, I that's don't think not, it's asking too much not for true. people I'm to talking follow about, our laws. I'm when they talking come about to this millions country. of folks. A lot of folks that are coming are not seeking asylum. A lot of them are undocumented immigrants, right? And you said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what. Section 18, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21, and Title 22 already cover human trafficking. That's the debate last night with Julian Castro mixing it up there with Beto O'Rourke over uh, Section 1325 of U.S. immigration law. And the roots of 1325 go back 90 years to a politician named Coleman Livingston Bleese. And with me to talk about him and the history of how in incarceration evolved in the U.S. is Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She's a professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA. Her most recent book is City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles, 1771 to 1965. Thanks for joining us, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about Coleman Livingston Blease. Probably most people have never heard of this uh, former U.S. senator. Yes, thank you for asking about him. Coleman Livingston Bleese was from South Carolina, and he had spent a good part of the late 19th century and the early 20th century um, fighting his way into the state legislature upon anti-black proposals such as segregating all transportation um, facilities in Louisiana and in South Carolina. And he finally wins his place in the United States Congress in 1925 upon a singular platform, and that is to protect white supremacy and Jim Crow, um, not just across the American South, but across the United States. Um, He enters Congress and he advocates 
for um, the United States not participating in a world court because he does not want U.S. judges to have to sit next to black judges. He advocates publicly for lynching, which is not a very publicly popular position even during the 1920s. And he's even a poet who writes and recites poetry against black folks on the floor of the United States Congress. And he is the person who brings 1325 to the United States Congress in 1921. I also noted that he wanted to make a constitutional amendment to prohibit interracial marriage. I mean, that's going pretty far. Absolutely. He was very extreme. He also wanted to limit the voting rights of naturalized U.S. citizens. All right. So how does he get mixed up with this uh, law 1325? Well, at the time in, in the 1920s, uh, the United States Congress had passed a new piece of legislation that had effectively created a whites-only immigration system in 1924. But one back door was left open, and that's for Mexican immigrants to enter the country to be able to participate in agricultural labor and railroad work and whatnot. Now, Blease and his counterparts, who were just rabidly um, white supremacist, argued that we needed to close that back door. And so the U.S. Secretary of Labor, who then oversaw immigration to the United States, brought a bill to Blease that would criminalize undocumented entry into the United States. Um, the goal was to force Mexican immigrants to enter through official ports of entry, where we could open doors and close doors at will. And that any time a Mexican entered the United States without formal authorization, um, they would be criminalized, punished, imprisoned, and then deported. All right. Now, did that get universal support in Congress? Did that just kind of flew right by? It largely did. It did not get a lot of pushback. Um, early ACLU and others um, fought on this issue, but the United States Congress passed this legislation on March 4th of 1929. Uh, now, what I'm kind of left thinking what was going on before that, or how do you, uh, what happens if this is a civil offense and, and this 1325 were gone? What would it be like? Well, let's talk about what it was like before 1929. If you enter the United States without official authorization, that was a civil violation and you could be removed from the country. But one really important um, thing to remember about U.S. history is that during this time period, there was a three-year limit on how long somebody could be undocumented in the United States. Um, if you violated the rules of entry or if you violated the rules of staying in the United States, um, it didn't matter after three years, um, so long as you generally lived a what they would describe as a crime-free life um, or did not become a public charge, you would no longer be undocumented after three years. So this was a really, I think, an interesting proposal for us to consider today that um, undocumented status does not need to be a permanent life in the shadows, that in addition to transforming um, 1325 into a civil violation, we can also think about putting time limits and caps on undocumented status. Now, it seems like the whole planet is going more the direction of 1325 than against it. Uh, what is, is, did, did this be, when did this become a norm? When did 1325 become a norm? Yeah, well, the criminalization of, of, of the undocumented. Well, I don't know if I can answer that for you on the global scene, but in the United States, it's really 
aggressively utilized throughout the 1930s when there's a campaign to remove as many Mexican immigrants from the United States as possible, whether it be through deportation or through strong encouragement of self-deportation. And then it's not until World War II when we no longer um, are opposed to Mexican immigration because we need Mexican immigrants that we stop really aggressively enforcing 1325. Um, and it does not come back into vogue until 2005, the war on terror, uh, President Bush's administration, um, when you see the enforcement of 1325 begin to tick up again. How do you take the debate that's going on right now over – people are saying, well, there's concentration camps in the United States. Um, in your book, you refer to human caging as uh, kind of the term you use. How do you, what, what do you think is going on here? Well, you know, I think it's very interesting that the organizers and activists are talking about the immigrant detention centers as internment centers or or camps. Let me talk about that really quickly. After 1325, um, Lisa's law of 1929 first went into effect, the United States federal government had to build a series of new prisons to hold the tens of thousands of Mexican immigrants who were being prosecuted and imprisoned on this charge. One of the prisons that they built was called Tucson Prison Camp Number 10. It was the labor camp where Mexican immigrants were forced to work building roads in Arizona. After um, the Great Depression, when World War II begins and we need Mexican labor again, it empties of Mexican immigrants and Tucson Prison Camp Number 10 becomes the site of incarcerating Japanese and Japanese-American persons who refuse to be interned, persons such as the iconic Gordon Hirabayashi. So the uh, t- tell, place- us, tell us who, who he is. Absolutely. So Gordon Hirabayashi was um, a resident of Washington who, when the order, the Washington State, when the order to um, intern oneself was issued. He refused to do so. And so he was convicted and imprisoned. Um, (laughs) When the federal government offered to pick him up and take him to prison, he said, no, thanks. I'll walk myself there. So Gordon Hirabayashi walked himself from Washington to to Tucson to serve his time for refusing to be interned during World War II. But there's another part of this story. After World War II, Tucson prison camp became a place of incarceration for Native American boys. So you have this place that was created, this prison that was created, largely by Coleman Livingston Blease and this campaign to secure a whites-only immigration system in the United States that is flexible and durable and revolving over time as a site really of white supremacy, first of Mexican exclusion, then of anti-Japanese and Japanese-American sentiment, and then to incarcerate Native American boys. I'm talking with Kelly Lytle Hernandez. She's a professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA. Her most recent book is City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles, 1771 to 1965. So that example of Tucson Prison Camp Number 10 is um, kind of points out something. I think a lot of people think of mass incarceration as largely an anti-black thing that is going on in this country. But it, this makes it... Um, so much broader and um, kind of it, it's kind of uh, overwhelming. Yeah, so there is no denying, there's no doubt that mass incarceration is an anti-black regime. 
But that is not the entirety of the story, however. And so the way in which I like to think about or I've come to think about uh, mass incarceration is that the United States, we like to think of as the nation of immigrants. And in many cases, when we're advocating for immigrants um, in this moment of extraordinary anti-immigrant sentiment, we like to refer to the United States as the nation of immigrants, when in fact we are not the nation of immigrants. Um, immigration, free migration to the United States is one way that this country has been peopled. But beneath that, there have been three forced migrations that have defined the United States. The first is the removal of native peoples. The second is the transatlantic slave trade. And the third forced migration that has made the United States is deportation. We have to understand that Anywhere between 7 and 17 million Native peoples were moved to create the United States. 400,000 um, Africans were imported and enslaved in the United States. That became 4 million by the time of emancipation, the single largest financial asset in the United States. Since 1896, the United States has affected 50 million deportations out of this country. So what I'm trying to put forward here is that there are three forced migrations that have made this, this country, native removal, the slave trade, and deportation. And all of these historical phenomena, living historical phenomena, are part of our carceral regime today. So we absolutely see the dynamics of anti-blackness happening in our policing, in our criminalization, in our incarceration. We also have to do the work of looking to see that Native peoples experience as high rates of police killings as young black men. And we have to see the ways in which the um, immigrant detention system is one of the most vibrant, dynamic, and thriving forms of human caging in the United States today. So all these three threads are at work in mass incarceration. That figure of 50 million uh, people who've been deported from the United States, can you pull that apart a little bit? Yeah, so it's 50 million deportations. Some of those may be – or enforced removals. Some of those may be the same person – um, deported or removed multiple times, but 50 million affected. Um, it begins during the Chinese exclusion era when we create this new legal technique called deportation to eject and remove and to banish peoples of um, Chinese descent in the country. And it evolves over time as U.S. immigration law becomes far more, as we would say, comprehensive to include other populations, um, even European anarchist, but by the 1920s, um, deportation and forced removal is largely focused upon Mexican immigrants and today um, Central American immigrants and an increasing number of Asian immigrants. Um, Indian, um, East Indian immigrants at the border are experiencing extraordinarily high levels of detention and removal. Um, so that's, that's how that picks apart and evolves over time. Well, how do you um, think about the United States? And, and it's, you, you were talking earlier about how we think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants. But I mean, is, 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 is it more accurate to think of it as some kind of white settler colonialism that took root here? You got it. I would say that we are not a nation of immigrants. In fact, we are a nation of settlers that there are only targeted populations that have been allowed to fully incorporate and become citizens across time here. Um, 
And what I'm talking about is white European immigrants. And so uh, we have to be very aware that there's one free form of migration that constitutes the United States, that's European migration. And non-white populations and native populations have been targeted by forced removals um, over the centuries. Well, how does that fit in with something like the Irish? The Irish were demonized and uh, disliked when they came to this country. Is that uh, how does that fit into white settler colonialism? They should have been accepted. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really good question. And we have lots of literature on the um, expansion of whiteness over time. And this is where it's really important to look at this 1924 piece of legislation that in 1924, as the historian May Nye points out for us, what the United States Congress does is it draws a line around all of Europe and incorporates all European immigrants for the first time and hardens the line between Europe and anywhere else where um, we um, fully ban Asian immigration to the United States um, in 1924 in particular. So whiteness is capacious. It too is flexible and over time has expanded to include um, communities that had once been disparaged in the United States, such as the Irish, as you point out. Is this country having a healthy conversation about this now? About immigration control in particular. And our whole past, our history, our white settler colonialism. I think we're on the right track. And I'm really glad to see the conversation happening around 1325. I'm glad to see people um, interested in the history of how we got to this moment, really pulling back the veil of what seems to be a natural set of laws and facts was given to us by a Jim Crow um, advocate, by um, a white supremacist, this Coleman Livingston Bleese. And we have to really seriously think through our immigration regime. Um, Let me give you one little factoid. Immigrant detention was created by the United States Supreme Court on May 17th of 1896 in a ruling called Wong Wing versus the United States. Um, They decided in that case that immigrant detention is, quote, not imprisonment in a legal sense, meaning that people in detention um, do not have the protections of the United States Constitution, which are only tied to criminal cases and criminal proceedings. What's important to note here is that the same United States Supreme Court that gave us immigrant detention as something that's adrift in the United States Constitution, which, as Castro points out, is why children can be held in warehouses, why families can be separated. Um, That is the same court that gave us Plessy v. Ferguson on the very same day. So the mind, the culture, the court that gave us Jim Crow America is the mind, the culture, the court that gave us immigrant detention in particular and immigration control overall. We have got to get serious about repealing a wide set of immigration laws if we want to truly uproot um, Jim Crow in the United States. And of course, that is a project that will have to happen um, tightly aligned with undoing what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow of mass incarceration. Kelly Lytle Hernandez is professor of history and African-American studies at UCLA. Her most recent book is City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. Thanks very much for talking about uh, 1325 and its background in history of the U.S. Thank you for having me. 
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about uh, the Wild Mile here in the Chicago River. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. What if you could kayak through a park? A new project in Chicago is making that possible. If all goes well, in 2020, Wild Mile Chicago will be a floating eco-park on the North Branch Canal of the Chicago River. It'll include floating gardens, wetlands, and walkways. We're going to hear more about it now with uh, the co-founder of the Urban Rivers Organization, Nick Wesley, who I talked to a few years ago about this project. Good to see you, Nick. Good to see you, too. And the manager of of uh, conservation stewardship at the Shed Aquarium, Jackie Midoff. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you, too. Um, Describe uh, where exactly is this Wild Mile, Nick Wesley, and what's been going on there? Yeah, so the Wild Mile is located on the east side of Goose Island, right south of uh, North Avenue. So it's a channel in the Chicago River, which was dug out in the 1800s and basically had no real ecological value for a long period of time. So... The concept is to build floating gardens, other sort of assets to really rewild this place and turn it into an ecological sanctuary. And your organization um, has been uh, at this for a few years now. Urban Rivers is a bunch of people who wanted to do this. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're just breaking away inch by inch. And what, what have you put there so far? Yeah, so far we have uh, a few different installations. In 2017, we had the first one, which was uh, from a Kickstarter, where we added a bunch of different habitat for different species. And since then, we've added an island with Shed Aquarium, as well as one with the uh, British School and National Geographic. So it keeps expanding Uh, year by year. That sounds terrific. And um, Jackie, why did the uh, Shed Aquarium want to get involved and get out there in the Chicago River um, well, as soon as we heard about this project, we were excited, and it's just such an innovative, fun idea, and we're always looking for ways to connect the public to our aquatic systems. Uh, so this was just an awesome way to do that here in our city. It's, it, the, it's Lots of exciting stuff is happening for the river right now, and partnering with Urban Rivers to, to install islands and then get people out there was really our focus. What's the island you just installed? Tell us about that. Uh, so this is our second island with uh, Urban Rivers, a series of five of them that are going to go in, in the, over the um, next, there'll be four additional years. Uh, and we installed that just this Tuesday. That was an additional 600 square feet or so. And uh, with that we have been uh, getting kayakers out to explore these islands uh, and uh, find out what water wildlife is using them. Uh, what is in an island? What kind of plants and things are, are what are, what are we talking about there? Yeah, so we do a mix of different. All of them are Illinois native plants, and so we we basically try to experiment with different species to see how they react in the system, and then build out more or less a plant list of what will work in this type of. Uh, garden. So we do things uh, that will attract insects and pollinators. We do different things that have large root systems, which are really good for the fish underneath the gardens because roots grow directly through these floating garden systems and, and really try to optimize the habitat that can really live in this area. What kind of fishies come in? So, so far this year, we've, um, well, this week when we were installing the island, there were 
common carp that were spawning all over the place. So there's splishing and splashing throughout the canal. And then at this, just a couple of days later, we see the whole canal filled with eggs. Everything that is floating in the canal right now is covered in eggs. Oh, um, no kidding. Mm-hmm. We've also found uh, Is that catfish? good or bad? Is that too much did you get too much carp or are you trying to like like is there are you trying to attract something else well we try you know we try to get as much as many different species as possible so there's you know you see things like catfish um banded killifish uh spotfin shiners bluegill all these other things that are normally in the water are kind of coming towards this but carp are an extraordinarily resilient fish they are also giant so they're mm-hmm. the most noticeable mm-hmm. when you're kind of and they are they too river. big at eating the other stuff in some ways, yeah. They've been here for a very long time, though, at least the common carp. So um, I don't think it's going to destroy everything, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know. It's not like the Asian carp that you hear about in other river systems. All right. Now, so you're happy with the kind of uh, wildlife that's showing up. You're, this is like going according to plan. So far, so good, Yeah. Yeah, uh, and you can talk a little bit about the things that you guys have been seeing uh, with mm-hmm. the kayak conservation. We've also found some bluegills, some catfish, uh, and then we have a researcher at Shedd Aquarium who's looking at uh, fish that are spawning in that portion of the river, uh, and he has found larval fish. He goes out there at night with glow sticks to attract these larval fish, and they, they come oh, to him. Really? And, and uh, <laughs> so, so we know that they're out there and, and spawning. And you've been engaging young people in this? They help build the islands and things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we're doing actually right now, we have a, a Kickstarter that actually went live yesterday where we're – the goal of it is to um, build more islands and all of these islands are then installed by local students. So we did programs like this with the British School and other things as well as you know uh, Kayak for Conservation, bring out just tons of people to actually see these things and interact with them. So it's, it's kind of a, a thing that spans generations I'm talking with Nick Wesley. He's co-founder of Urban Rivers and Jackie Midoff. She is the conservation stewardship director at the Shedd Aquarium. And we're talking about Wild Mile Chicago, a floating eco park on the north branch of the Chicago River starting at about North Avenue. Yeah, just a little south of North Avenue. Yes. Mm -hmm. Going up to Division? Uh, Eventually. Eventually. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> right now, yeah, right outside the Whole Foods on North Avenue is the best place to see it. So do people come and take check it out and look at it? If I, if I want to go and check it out and look at it, people listening want to go check it out and look at it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. So you can go to – if you walk along the river walk there, you could see it over the edge. You can also rent a kayak at somewhere like Kayak Chicago and take a nice little tour of it mm-hmm. and see, uh, see what's really happening in the river. So you can go out there and see the fish eggs and everything? Oh, yeah. What if you bring glow sticks? What if you go at night? <laughs> you might see some larval fish. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so fun. What's the biggest obstacle to doing this? You know, the hardest thing to do, the biggest obstacle at first was really getting the permitting done to actually put these things in. But now that's kind of, uh, that path has kind of been trailed. So now it's just about putting in more gardens and more um, more habitat installations. So. How big a problem is garbage in the river? It's a pretty big issue, yeah. It's an issue, and it's it's unfortunate because it continues to give this the river a bad rep. Um, the, really, the river is cleaned up quite a bit, but people see debris floating in it and uh, feel that it, it's really – it doesn't give the reflection for how far the Chicago River has come. And that's part of the what we do also as part of the program is to do litter monitoring. So we're trying to figure out – we're working with other partners throughout the Chicagoland area uh, to, to figure out what's ending up in the river and 
identify its source so we can stop it before it gets in there. I'm just guessing, but people going over bridges, throwing stuff out of their cars, is that, that, I mean, this stuff comes down the river and gets clogged up in the floating islands, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a myriad of ways. So Mm -hmm. most of it... um, most of it isn't just people, you know, rogue individuals tossing their <laughs> McDonald's out their window. Most of it is actually just open lid garbage cans that, you know, things blow out and then eventually find themselves in the river. When you have CSOs, you get some things that people flush down their mm-hmm. toilets end up in the river. So it's a bunch of different ways. And, that they actually but really, that's themselves. something we don't know right now. And that's part of why we need to get this data, because we can't fully answer that question at this time. So you've got to pick the stuff up and analyze and we, it? And we categorize it. <laughs> Great. And... Uh, and then that, that data is provided to Loyola University and Friends of the Chicago River, and they uh, are using that to, to understand where, are, where, where is this coming from so we can stop it before it even gets there. All right. So you're getting out there in kayaks picking this stuff off. Is that basically what's going on? Uh, that's uh, part of the program, yeah. Yeah. It's the best way, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you find all sorts of interesting stuff. It's, 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 it's a lot, it is a lot of fun. Uh, what what are, what are your goals for the program next? You're, you seem to be popping along pretty good. Yeah. I mean, really, what we want to see is this build out to be a whole eco park. So the next things we have to do is add more gardens and habitat installations in, testing out different uh, concepts, adding new walkways um, so that people can actually access on the river and be a part of this whole system. So uh, over the next uh, two, three years, we're going to start to see some of these things rolled out. And I think it'll be pretty exciting. So this fits into the whole Chicago River redevelopment that's going on, the, and the whole idea that you should be able to be on a trail all the way up the Chicago River and all that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is – it's one of those areas that I think will will kind of be a uh, a reference for other projects throughout both the Chicago River and other rivers throughout the world as how you can actually take something which is an industrial channel, how you can turn it into a really nice habitat-first, uh, ecocentric area and bring people in it in within the city to interact in that type of unique space. Is there any kind of commercial thing going up and down the river that um, gives you pause? That's part of what makes this part of the river so ideal for this kind of work because this area is closed off to... You've got a hook there. To, where, uh, yes. So that east that eastern side of Goose Island, there's no major boat traffic that can go down there. So it's the ideal for this eco-park concept. Mm. Yeah, in in terms of you know other other places popping up throughout Chicago, one of the things we want to see is as you know more developers and other people build along the river, they see this type of place and they see how you can actually engage the river in a really holistic way. And we're hoping that as we put more of these things in and prove out the concepts, it becomes more or less a no brainer to take any river edge that you know you're building on and make it a really robust you know habitat mm-hmm. place for people in. Wildlife alike. What's the lesson that you've learned about building these islands? The best, best lessons. You know, probably to not. Probably the best lesson is that as soon as you put any sort of habitat in, you're going to start to see some results. And really, the goal is as soon as you start to see results, is to document that and monitor it because that'll help dictate what goes on in the future. So anyone who's doing any sort of river conservation work or projects in the river, you know, it's really important to, to figure out what's happening after they, you know, put whatever they want in the water and then use that to fuel what you do next. What's been the funnest thing you've been able to document about this? Oh, <laughs> probably, 
One of the things we did initially is we tested out a bunch of different plant species, and we put in a lot of uh, species which are drier species, not used to this type of you know, wetland environment, and we wanted to see if they would survive. And we had a lot of those ones actually come back the next year. So it turned out really well. I think we had a 95% success rate of the plants we planted when, in reality, we intended to have you know, 10 to 15% of those not survive, so we can cross it off the list. But mm-hmm. plants are more resilient than, uh, than sometimes you give them credit for. All plants like the river. All, all, <laughs> you know, most, except for 5% of those ones. <laughs> but, but yeah, no. Well, that's terrific. Now, um, I hope people can check out your, um, your, your, your fundraising effort. Where is it at once Yeah, again? so if you go on to ks.urbanriv.org, it'll link you to the Kickstarter page. You can also find out more about our organization at urbanrib.org. All right. Terrific. And I hope people check it out, the the Wild Mild Chicago just north of North Avenue. And uh, I'm going to get out there and look around at myself. Yeah. Yeah. And if you guys are looking for a way to get out, the Kayak for Conservation program is a really cool way to volunteer and really experience the river. So it's a nice... Kayak for Conservation mm-hmm. program. So that's a shed aquariums program around the the islands. So we get people out on kayaks so they can get out there, see the islands, help us monitor the wildlife that are using the mo- the, the islands and the 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 canal. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. So people will write stuff down. Yes, people write stuff down. Uh, so we go out. We monitor invertebrates. We monitor fish and turtles, waterfowl, and then also the litter. <laughs> Rats. Yeah. <laughs> That's the bad part. <laughs> we make it as easy for people as possible. <laughs> and they could sign up where? So that they would go to shedaquarium.org backslash kayak. Jackie Midoff is the conservation stewardship person at the Shed Aquarium. And Nick Wesley, well, Wesley is the co-founder of Urban Rivers. And we've been talking about Wild Mild Chicago. And thanks a lot for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll check in with our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, and we'll talk with Cirque Esteem, a social circus. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Today we visit with Dan Roberts from the social circus Cirque Esteem. Partnering with Cirque du Soleil, Cirque Esteem is back to invite you to their Chicago Social Circus Festival 2019. The eight-day fest has brought kids in from around the United States, from Puerto Rico, for the performances across the Chicago area. Great to see you, Dan Roberts. Thanks for having us. Tell people what you're talking about here with a social circus, first of all, for people who have not been presented with this sure, idea. Sure. So Circus Team uses uh, social circus or the art of, of working, uh, teaching youth circus to bring youth together, um, youth from kind of segmented, to segmented portions of society, um, to bring them together to build bridges and to build self-esteem um, through the practice and performance of circus Arts. So there are no elephants. There are no uh, tigers or anything. No, there no. are young people. Perhaps, 
puppet tigers, but, but no <laughs> actual tigers. How did you get into this line of work? Uh, funny enough, I was uh, an acting student at a, at a theater conservatory downtown, and we had a semester of circus at school. Um, I liked it. I told the professor I wanted to keep doing it, and he introduced me to Circus Team uh, about 16 years ago. And you had this odyssey of <laughs> going on um, social circuses around the world. You were with Correct. Um, yeah. Clowns Without Borders for mm-hmm. a while? Mm-hmm. I spent uh, a little time with Clowns Without Borders in 2007 and 2008. And then uh, I actually started with Clowns Without Borders in Indonesia um, and then stayed on for almost 10 years. I founded a group called Red Nose Foundation, um, which is a social circus based out of Jakarta, Indonesia. And we had them in one we time. We did, and yeah, last was, year. It was super fun Absolutely. To, to see the. Yeah. Yeah. How, how does it... it it you know when it's when you have the kids in the studio like that and you see people together, <laughs> um, you, I guess you know it works. It, it, it almost immediately you know something's working. I mean, so that's really the 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 beautiful part of what circus team does is a lot of social circuses work on building self esteem and mutual respect, but we take it one step further and we build bridges with with youth who who might otherwise not have interacted with each other. So we brought. Uh, this social circus festival, we have 50 kids who will likely have never met each other from different corners of the country. And within five minutes of meeting each other, they were all best friends. I think it's so cool that there are social circuses throughout the country now, that this is a, a proven phenomenon. It is, it is pretty exciting. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the movement. Myself. Tell us about the partners that are here in Chicago for Social Circus Festival 2019. Sure. We have uh, from Trenton, New Jersey, Trenton Circus Squad. We have Circus Harmony from St. Louis. We have Sanka from Seattle. We have uh, Fern Street Circus from San Diego. And we have Escuela Nacional de, de, de Circo from Puerto Rico. Are you jealous of any of these circuses? <laughs> do you get do you, do you look at them and go, oh, they got it going on. I'm going to steal that idea. Cause, oh, yeah. Absolutely. We, we, we like to call it borrowing the ideas. <laughs> um, I mean, that's one of, the, one of the additional kind of outcomes of the project is we get to kind of put our heads together and, and figure out how we can do the similar things that we're all doing, do them a little bit better. I'm talking with Dan Roberts from Circus Team, and we're talking about Chicago Circus Festival 2019. Um, so you've brought all these organizations in. Um, tell us about where you're where you're performing and how this all works out. I mean, you're almost performing right now. It seems like. <laughs> there's yeah. in a half hour doing something. <laughs> That's true. Um, we have shows. The Social Circus Festival has an additional five shows this weekend. Um, we'll be at Theater on the Lake in about half an hour. We'll be at. Austin Town Hall, Hamilton Park, uh, at Circus Team uh, on Saturday, July 29th at 4 p.m. at our space in Uptown. Um, And then again on Sunday at Maxwell Street. All right. And that's uh, – so the next few days, the end of June here is going to be a um, massive circus team festival all over the place. Very full. And then throughout the summer, we have a a total of 46 shows um, across Chicago in 25 different neighborhoods. We're partnering with the Chicago Libraries, Chicago Park Districts, Millennium Park, and D-Case. Um, I mean, we have a, you can check out our website to get the listing of all the shows, but there are at least five opportunities a week to watch a free circus team show until the end of August. And I imagine that summer is the time that you kind of have more access to the kids to do shows. Absolutely. This is, this is your, your hot time. Yeah. You know, um, we work with a whole variety of youth, um, youth who come from 
uh, under-resourced communities and youth who come from very resourced communities. Um, and the one thing they, that, that they all have in common is we want them to do well in school. We love circus. We love teaching them circus. Our goal is, however, not to make them circus performers, but it's to help uh, create positive contributors to society through the circus arts. So when we have them during the summer when they're not in school, we, we would like to see them every day. Um, and for many of our youth, we do. Um, we have one of your youth on the line with us now, Absolutely. one of the performers who is uh, going to be at theater in, on the lake in a half an hour, uh-huh. uh, Shane Moon. They are 17 years old and a, uh, a student at Sanka. Is that right? Sanka in Sanka Seattle. Sanka in Seattle, yep. a Absolutely. social circus program for seven years. And they have been performing since they were 13 years old. And thanks for joining us, Shane Moon. Hi. It sounds like you've had a long history with social circus here. How did what happened to you? How did you get into this? Well, I was I was one of those kids that just kind of wanted to do all sorts of things and one of those things is when I was little I wanted to try trapeze. And so <laughs> my mom, she found a Groupon online for a um intro to circus class, which tried just about everything in circus, oddly enough, (laughs) not flying trapeze. (laughs) Uh, And I just, I fell in love and I've been doing it ever since. I've been going anywhere from four to six days a week since I was 10. What has it meant to you, the the people you meet at at the Seattle Social Circus? What, what's it been like? Well, it's it's very welcoming. Something that's great about circus is that no matter how you are, no matter how weird you are, your <laughs> quirks and oddities, you're always welcomed and everyone's a little different and we all get along really well usually. Uh, and um, did you uh, want to stay because of that or was it because of the circus tricks? <laughs> well, I actually... Um, that's a kind of a hard question. I grew up um, in not the best place, and so it was really uh, nice to have that confirmation that I could be so good at something. And like when I got a trick down, it was just such a rush to feel like I could do that. Like, wow, I did that, and I can continue to keep learning things and getting better. And so that's that rush really kept me on it. What are your best tricks? <laughs> My best tricks? Oh, um... Probably a three high, which is where there's one person standing and then another person standing on their shoulders and then another person standing on their shoulders. And I would be the bottom person on that trick. And you're standing straight up? Everybody's (laughs) standing straight straight up. up, Straight up, standing on shoulders. And you are the base person. Yes, I am a full base. Don't do any flying. (laughs) <laughs> All right. That's, uh, that does sound difficult, and it sounds like a high level of responsibility for your colleagues. Oh, yeah. We definitely we have to be very attentive to make sure that everyone's safe and that the communication is very clear. That's one of the best things about circus, using it in the, in the, in the format of social circus, is it's, it's, you're creating trust, and, and you're actually holding people on your shoulders. Um, and, oh, yeah. and after you have that experience with another person, there's, there's a bond that you create, that it's not just, oh, I trust you because you've, you've said something nice to me, but I trust you because you've actually caught me when I fell, or you've actually kept me from falling. Um, and I think it, with that trust kind of opens up uh, the the door to to really being able to see folks for who they are and to trust folks for who they are and to allow kind of on on, a, on an additional kind of a, a further in level to allow everyone to be who they are um, 
because we've we've kind of built a level of trust that goes beyond kind of the peripheral surface uh, relationships that often we have. Oh yeah, definitely. There was actually this one time when uh, I had just finished a class, and one of my uh, classmates parents came up to me and he he said to me he uh, said I was such a stable base and that he he trusted me with his daughter which I it was such an honor to hear <laughs> we're talking about circus team and their uh, performances that are taking place across Chicago now they're here with the social circus festival 2019 lots of other social social circuses right now in are in town and Shane Moon from the Seattle social circus Sanka what does Sanka stand for? Is that an acronym? I keep saying it, it and is. I don't know what it is. Uh, it, well, stands, <laughs> it stands for a school of uh, it stands for a school of acrobatics and new circus arts. School of Acrobatics and New Circus Arts. That, that's yeah. pretty yep. snazzy. That's I would have missed the in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> What's it like there now? You're up at um, Theater on the Lake, and you're going to perform in uh, in a half an hour. <laughs> um, what's it like up there now? Um, well, it's very, very hot. That's, that's, that's one thing. Um, I think currently everyone's having lunch. I'm actually just sitting in the van that we use to move all the equipment at the moment. And basically around this time, everyone's just kind of chilling, hanging out and getting all ready or setting props, setting up where everything will be. And it's just kind of chill. Yeah. Um, how many people do you think will be there today? Is, is are you trying to snag people as they go by? Is there a, is there a kind of a, a kind of a go get them atmosphere? Yeah. So we the the performance at Theater on the Lake is part of the Theater on the Lake kind of opening season for the summer. Uh, there will be groups of of children brought from different park district summer camps, ah. um, as well as it's been opened up to to the kind of greater Chicago community. Um, I would I would say we'll probably see a couple hundred people there today, including the kids, um, which, you know, for some of the kids who are, who are visiting from from out of town, this might be the largest audience they've performed for. Um, so it's it's a which is, you know, just, a, a, again, another layer of social circus is you work so hard for something. You do something you've never done before with folks you've never done it before with. And then you present it to an audience and that that feedback you get from the audience when they laugh at your your joke or they clap, they, they applause for your trick. It just uh, it, it builds that level of self-esteem in a way that I personally have never seen before in any other kind of art form. Um, working with youth and it, it just is it speaks to the power of social circus in a, in, a, in a really pretty incredible way well it sounds like um, you'll have a great time out there Shane with uh, everything that's going on at Theater in the Lake then uh, you're going to be at Austin uh, Town Hall Park Hamilton Park Maxwell Street Market and people can check out everything at circusteam.org you can check us out at circusteam.org. You know, the big capsta- capstone show is 4 p.m. at Alternatives, which is where Circus Team is based in Uptown, uh, on uh, Saturday afternoon. That's terrific. Um, now, it, what do you, uh, it, how do you see the future going with Circus Team? How, what, what is the next big goal? I mean, after, after this is over, what do you do next? 
take a break, rest. <laughs> no. um, you know, really, Circus Team's mission is twofold. It's to unite youth and it's to build self-esteem. And, and this festival, for me, is really just kind of a, a, a full, true embodiment of that. Um, and, and after the festival finishes, after the tour of the summer finishes, we're going to keep building programs around the city and keep reaching as many youth as we can. We currently work with 1,200 regularly enrolled youth. Oh, that's good. Um, in 22 neighborhoods across the city. Uh, anywhere from, uh, you know, one, two hours a week to 14 hours a week, depending on the age of the kid and their commitment to, to doing circus several days a week. So we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep trying to find new partners to reach youth who may be harder to reach, who don't know about us, who don't, uh, who, who don't necessarily have the same access to the arts as others. So, um, you know, circus team is really... We're here to stay, and we're here to we're here to make as 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 big of an impact in as real of a way as we can. Well, that's uh, it's great to hear that you're in so many locations. People might think, well, our headquarters is in Uptown. I don't live near there. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot get mm-hmm. my child near there. Mm-hmm. But you you are uh, all over the place. We are. Um, we partner a lot with different schools. Uh, we're we're actively continuously working to partner with different arts or arts organizations and service agencies around the city so that we can, uh, you know, whether we're at services added to a, to an, uh, another program or whether we're a standalone program. Um, the idea is we want to, we want to, we want to find touch points with, with youth because we believe strongly in what it is that we do and we want to make it accessible to, to as many folks as, as want to. Well, I saw you at the Refugee One Gala not too yep. long ago, Absolutely. and you were out there uh, with young people, getting mm-hmm. people to, my, my son was spinning plates, <laughs> all sorts of good things were happening. It was a riot. Yeah. Um, actually, we have a, a real nice, real unique partnership with Refugee One. Many of their uh, clients, the, the youth that come to their services, are then referred over to us um, as an activity for their youth to do. So we have a, a 40% of our, our uptown population uh, are refugee youth and many who've, whom have come from Refugee One. Dan Roberts is executive director of Circus Team. He's a founding member of the Asian Social Circus Association. And right now he is hosting the Social Circus Festival 2019. Check out all the spots at the Circus Team website. It's circusteam.org. And you can find out about the Chicago Social Circus Festival and every place it is and all the rest. Great to see you, Dan. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks also to uh, Shane Moon. They are a social circus performer uh, from Seattle Social Circus, Sanka. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about what queer liberation looks like 50 years after Stonewall. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.